So this was what they call a, a wildcat strike, well, right? It was originally a tame cat strike, and then it kind of went feral. Sure. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today, as usual, by Dara Lind and also by Alexia Fernandez-Campbell. We are going to talk, I don't know, there's, there's like really big news about North Korea happening, but we, we don't know anything about that. Um, so we, we instead want to talk about arguably the, the least important political news story of the day, Beta O'Rourke's first name, but I happen to think it's fascinating. So that's that's going to come later in the show. But first, we, we wanted to talk about the teacher strike in West Virginia. And that's been a, an interesting story that wended its way into, into the national media only a little bit slowly. But Alexia, can you just like fill listeners in if they haven't been paying attention? Like what, what happened? Yeah, so a lot of people weren't really paying attention at first. There was teachers in West Virginia had shut down the schools for maybe one day or two. And then it just started continuing day after day, and suddenly everyone was paying attention. And not only that, the teachers wanted a 5% raise, and that's kind of unheard of right now anywhere. Even in California, hasn't given teachers that big of a raise, but they hadn't gotten raises in so long, or they hadn't kept up with inflation. So they were really demanding. Even the labor unions were trying to reach a deal with the lawmakers and teachers like, nope, we want the 5% raise. And it was pretty remarkable. They don't have collective bargaining rights in, in West Virginia, and they managed to to get what they wanted by pretty much forcing the legislature to to take action. So West Virginia is one of a, a large number of states where public sector employees don't have a legal right to collective bargaining. But they went on strike anyway, and then the union leadership reached an original deal with the governor. That what was it, 3%? It was 2%. A 2% raise. So the leadership said, okay, you know, like we sort of did this illegal strike. We won some concessions. Let's let's call it a day. And then the teachers stayed out anyway. I guess that's that's right. the feral and, part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that there are a couple of things to kind of, you know, underline here. One is that not all of the states that outlaw striking for public sector employees outlaw connect- collective bargaining, right? right? There are definitely states where, like, you know— the public sector unions have the right to negotiate their contracts. Their pay schedules aren't being set by, you know, the legislature or anything. But if they're unhappy with the contract, they can't walk out. And those rights are particularly restricted for uh, in many states for police, for firefighters and for teachers, because those are kind of on one hand, those tend to be the most politically popular groups of public sector unions and a lot of the kind of attacks on public sector pensions and that kind of thing. You'll often see police and firefighters or police firefighters and teachers kind of exempted because nobody wants to be the person who like cut firefighters pensions. But on the other hand, there are the groups that you can make the argument that like every day they don't show up to work is going to be really bad for their communities. And so there is kind of a strong social as well as legal disincentive for teachers not to be showing up in the classroom. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, no no strike rules, depending on exactly how they're structured, can actually be be quite favorable to workers. Like the uh, WMATA workers in the D.C. area have a no no strike rule in the, the Metro Compact. But that just means that contract issues go to a binding arbitration process whose rules are, you know, fairly, fairly favorable to the workforce. But like the, the West Virginia legal setup was meant to be unfavorable. I mean, this is a, a state that has had 
I mean, it's an interesting political trajectory, right? West Virginia was one of the states that Michael Dukakis won in 88, and Bill Clinton carried it in 92 and, and 96. And, you know, so as recently as the 90s, it was a more democratic than average state. Then in 2000, it it broke toward George W. Bush, and in the 21st century has been like a like a rocket ship in terms of its rightward sort of political trajectory as the issue terrain has has shifted. And part of that had been like traditionally a big political influence in West Virginia and their clout had declined rapidly. The legal environment had shifted rapidly against them. But there was still a I don't know. I mean, a, a tradition of, of labor solidarity in, in the culture and teachers were able to leverage that to go out and stay out. Right. I mean, without a supportive legal framework and, and I guess eventually won a, a battle of public opinion. Yeah. I mean, I guess like I would love to hear, Alexia, your thoughts on what as you've been covering this, what it kind of looks like from the outside is that. In a world where public sector unions have kind of been the the heart of the labor movement for the last few decades, as private sector unionization has decreased, public sector unionization has stayed the same or increased, it seems that some of those unions are kind of so used to working with government that the idea of upsetting their the people in government who are supposed to be giving them their protections didn't really occur to them, right? Like that the unions in West Virginia went into this case assuming they were going to make a deal rather than assuming that they were going to have their demands met. And it seems that they've kind of been, I don't want to say captured necessarily, but that their idea of what was possible and desirable politically had shifted way to the right of where their members were. Is that kind of an accurate sense? Do they feel like sold out by the union or do they feel like they're upholding what the union should really stand for? I think in West Virginia, the key thing was that unions are just teachers unions just have zero like zero political power. The most they can do is act like lobbyists. And go to state lawmakers and be like, please do this. So they can't even reach a deal. And I think it's just across the United States. It does seem like it's a weakening of labor unions. But it's. I think when I was looking into and talking to teachers, they say it's more about just the way schools are funded. Because even states where teachers can collectively bargain, they bargain normally with like the local school districts. But they're funded, in many cases in West Virginia, overwhelmingly by state funds. So they don't have a lot of leverage in negotiating for that money. If the states just decide oh, we're going to cut taxes and cut school spending, then teachers unions really can't negotiate. So I think there's this um, teachers and state employees are just being like they just haven't had a lot of power. But the coal miners, the coal, um, in the, at least in the private sector, have had a lot more power because they'll just shut down the coal mines. So it wasn't necessarily about collective bargaining. It was just making these demands. And so they were actually very supportive. The coal unions um, were out there. Coal miners unions were out there supporting teachers and urging them to keep on with the strike. And so I think that also propelled it. Yeah, but yeah, labor unions, teachers in West Virginia are clearly like not happy with what the low standards or the just what the labor union was wanting to negotiate for them. And I mean— Something that's that's interesting here is that politics, electoral politics, practical politics has, I think, come to be so dominated by sort of culture war type issues. And that's what has pushed West Virginia very rapidly into becoming a very overwhelmingly re- Republican state. Uh, Joe Manchin is, is still out there as a Democratic senator. His career in state politics stretches into the past. And so he sort of stands apart from, from the party. But something that you, you see here is that a group like like teachers, right, a strike, by being 
outside of the political process, right? Like for for teachers in West Virginia to use their clout as organizers and as citizens to like try to get Democratic majorities elected in both houses of the state legislature would be like such an incredible hill to climb. Mm -hmm. But in a strike context, you are actually able to isolate a policy question about dedicating financial resources to public education from the like big axis of partisan conflict in the United States of America. And I think you've seen in a ton of states, I mean, lots of very conservative states have passed minimum wage ballot initiatives. You could imagine Democrats trying to say like, oh, you know, you should vote for this minimum wage increase and, and elect me to the state legislature. And it's just like it's never going to happen right. in places where people's like primary reference are abortion, gun control, you know, environmentalism, a sense that liberal elites are snobby or, you know, something like that. When the issues are isolated from partisan conflict, you see that actual people in America are not nearly as systematic or ideological in their voting behavior as their elected officials are, right? Like Republicans would never say, okay, we need to just like plow more money into teacher salaries. But lots of people who are very loyal Republican voters would actually yeah, want have no like, problem yeah. with that. Yeah, I, I think that this gets into a really big and hairy question um, that, you know, I think we, we probably are going to get into a in a little bit about the role of unions in current and future American life, right? Like the association of unions with the Democratic Party at the you know national level has led to seeing unions as just kind of a group that is going to push for Democratic policy priorities across the board, right? But, you know, for various reasons, the labor movement isn't seen as a force pushing the Democratic Party to focus on bread and butter issues that affect unionized workers. It's seen as kind of the ground troops of the Democratic Party. And so this question of when is labor supposed to be focusing on the bread and butter issues? When is labor supposed to be acting as, you know, a group in a political coalition tied to the Democratic Party is very much a live one. And it's one that's kind of going to become even more relevant in cases where unions have to actively reassert to their members or to the people they're purporting to represent why they should be relevant, why they should be continued to be supported. And the kind of deculture warization of like, oh, we're not just here so that we can get Democrats elected to office so that they can legalize gay marriage and, you know, liberalize immigration laws. But we're here so that we can get more wage increases for you is something that it's not that it's novel, but it's definitely something that hasn't kind of been vocalized as the right to work wave of the last five years has happened. Now, I was going to add that. Well, one of the things I think that has reflected a lot of the frustration and you know, and the thing in West Virginia is that Democrats and Republicans have voted for a lot of these tax cuts that have sc cut school funding. So I do think that it's true that workers and teachers, like people are getting just frustrated with the labor unions. And they and they obviously, I mean, in, in what's happening in Oklahoma and, and Arizona is that they just don't think that they're doing enough. And it could have something to do with what you said is just being very much uh, unionization, becoming a very much a political thing. OK, let's take a break and then let's talk about what's happening in Oklahoma and Arizona. 
I like to learn things, and I bet if you listen to The Weeds, you also like to learn things. But what's really great is being able to learn new things whenever and however you want. With The Great Courses Plus, you can do that. It's like it's amazing to have the flexibility to watch lectures, or now you can just stream the audio with The Great Courses Plus app. That's a great thing to do. You can brush up in some Spanish while you're driving. You can explore ancient history while you're making dinner. Uh, learn about astronomy and the solar system while just walking around the neighborhood, doing your errands, whatever you got. It's like on-demand knowledge. Uh, you can set playback speed just like in a favorite podcast app and easily toggle back to video for visual context uh, whenever you want. You get some place, you're on the checkout line, you switch back to video, you can watch it that way. It's more immersive. So The Great Courses Plus is unlimited access to thousands of lectures in virtually any category from all the world's top experts. Uh, a course I've enjoyed is Outsmart Yourself, Brain-Based Strategies to a Better You. It is about like understanding how your brain works and what you can do to make it function better so that you get done what you want to do in your life. It's fascinating. Once you learn it, you're going to have so much more free time to listen to podcasts, to listen to more Great Courses lectures. Uh, so sign up for the Great Courses Plus today. You are going to love it. Our listeners get a free trial, free, with unlimited access to enjoy all their lectures. But you got to go to a special URL. So start your free trial now. You sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds, and then you download the free Great Courses Plus app. So remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. So what's happening in Oklahoma and Arizona? Well, what's happening in Oklahoma is really interesting. Yesterday, Oklahoma is honestly way worse off. The teachers, what they have gone through than what's happening in West Virginia. Right. They've seen like the worst cuts to school funding. Depending on which measures you look at, they get paid less than teachers in West Virginia. And they weren't even getting even a 1% raise. Like they had asked, they had begged, they've been like putting so many bills forward saying we want this at least a 1% raise. And when the legislature said, no, we're not even going to give you that. And actually, we're going to take more money away from the schools. The situation in Oklahoma has just been brewing, this anger, this frustration. When they saw what was happening in West Virginia, you could see at these school board meetings, teachers saying, they're better off than we are, and we're not doing anything. So what's happening in West Virginia is that yesterday they said, um, we are going to shut down the schools on April 2nd unless you actually fund the schools to pre-recession levels. I don't know if it actually goes all the way back to that, but they're asking for millions of dollars. They've proposed tax increases, and Republicans have said, no, we're not going to do that. So now they're saying you have to find some way to raise the money, and we actually want more of a raise. We want more than a 1% raise. So, so I mean, o- Oklahoma is an interesting context, so somewhat different from, from West Virginia, where, you know, Oklahoma has been a, a conservative state for uh, for a long time. And they nonetheless had a sort of big Kansas-style tax-cutting shock a few years ago. And then also the local oil exploration industry hit sort of a, a snag, a downturn due to some, you know, national global trends in, in the price of oil. And so it's got them in a, in a really bad budgetary position. I, I've been covering special elections for, for state legislatures. And all of Democrats' most impressive performances have come in Oklahoma. They've like flipped a couple seats that Trump won by, by 20 or 30 points. But also, there have been seats that Trump won by like 70 points, where the Democratic candidate will then lose by 15. Um, you know, so it's like yeah. a big swing. Uh, Mary Fallon, their, their governor, is one of the least popular in, in the country. And by no means does this mean that like Oklahoma is about to become a, a blue state or, or anything. Maybe, maybe, maybe Democrats could win one House race there. But people are very upset. Right. And so far, the political system has not been responsive to that. It seems like 
Republicans in the Oklahoma legislature, they know the governor is unpopular. They know they've lost a couple stunner special election races, but they just feel confident and they're probably right that like they're mostly going to get reelected, that the next governor will also be a Republican. And then it sort of doesn't matter that people are mad. So that's like a, a ripe circumstance for direct action, right? Where like the whole point of something like that is to like make people do something by creating a situation where you can't you can't just like shrug, right? Like if the schools are closed, like you have a problem. You Well, especially cuz like the date they picked is the date that students have to sit down for mandatory testing. Like they deliberately picked that so that the state would know that they were entirely up the creek without a paddle if they didn't manage to find a deal. Yeah. And it's it's just it's really interesting because from the states that I've been looking at, these t- the teachers have been proposing so many different, like raising taxes on the oil industry, on cigarettes, on so many different different ways to pay for it. That this time they said, you guys are going to have to find a way to pay for it because we've proposed so many different things that just don't pass. But it's interesting what you said that um, is it actually going to make a difference? Do does the legislature care? I mean, I don't know how big the numbers are, uh, but the teachers there are are really pissed off. Yeah, I think the other thing here that's really relevant to, you know, and especially in the context of getting Republicans to support something is that the kind of in Oklahoma, it seems like it's focused on pay kind of entirely, whereas West Virginia, one of the questions was how teachers are going to be insulated from rising insurance costs, et cetera. In Oklahoma, the idea that they're the worst paid in the country and that that is hurting the education system seems to be something that legislators acknowledge. Like there was a state legislator who said, yeah, teachers are threatening to walk out, but we're already having teachers walking out. They're walking out of state to find better pay. Like it's the idea that Uh, it's going to be a problem for your school system if you can't pay teachers competitively is is something that people tend to grant. And, you know, the dominant narrative of the public sector unions being kind of lazy or complacent relies on the idea that it's still okay. It's still going to give you a safe middle class career to be a government worker in a way it isn't anymore to be a private sector worker. Like the private middle class has been totally squeezed. The public middle class is is still kind of fattened by these labor agreements. But the flip side of that is that when you have a fairly strong economy and labor market, as we do right now, you start to see cases in which there's not as as much of a reason to be a teacher in a state where you're going to be paid worse than you are anywhere else. So the logic we've seen in education reform for the last 20 years of government needs to be more like the private sector, it needs to innovate, we need to have charter schools, we need to have alternatives. You can see that logic apply to, we need to pay teachers competitively. And it seems like that's beginning to percolate into the public understanding. Yeah. And it's been teachers, they said that they they were telling me during the recession, um, they were willing to take pay freezes, but things are not the same anymore. And, and yet the funding for the schools has not bounced back to pre-recession levels. That Oklahoma would not even give their teachers a 1% raise is incredible because pe- teachers have been sh- posting on Facebook there. You can see their paychecks take home pay from like this year to last year. Like they're making, not only are they not getting raises, they're actually making less money because it's not adjusted for inflation anymore. Now the cost of living is increasing. So teachers are actually making less than they were before the recession. Yeah. And to, to Dara's point, you know, there is a real paradigm shift as you get into a much stronger overall 
labor market, right? I mean, a thing about teaching, right, is that even when the economy takes a downturn, like school districts, they try to not just have mass layoffs of of teachers. You enjoy your job security. And even if you get squeezed in other ways, it's like people are like, look, you got to be thankful for what you got because nobody's hiring anything anywhere. Now, when you're at a point where the national unemployment rate is 4.1 percent, you know, a public school teacher, somebody who, you know, has a college degree, maybe sometimes has has a master's degree, may not have a lot of specific private sector job skills. But in a tight labor market is somebody who private employers will look at for like a wide range of white collar type positions. Not least private and charter schools. Right. And then also other Places are hiring teachers. I mean, I was just looking. There's like a basic job site, you know, 1,400 teacher job postings in in Texas right now that you could go to. Uh, Texas teachers are not compensated uh, royally by by any means, but they're higher paid than Oklahoma teachers. And that's an option that, that people have. And it begins to change the sort of logic of this from... Is this just something we're going to look at as a cost center or are we really going to lose out in terms of being able to have a good education system? And then that becomes – particularly for these Sunbelt states, which are very keen on sort of trying to poach uh, office jobs and, you know, like – corporate regional headquarter type things for, from other companies is that, you know, people don't want to move – their staff, their executives to a place that has a reputation for all the teachers just quit last year. Yeah, that's not good for business at all. I think what's really interesting here is that labor relations fundamentally are a question of who has more power, right? And the right to work wave of kind of the the current one that we've seen over the last, you know, seven years since the Wisconsin labor unrest of of 2011 has assumed that the only collective power that public sector unions have takes away from the public as a whole, right? Like if they strike, that's bad for kids who are going to, you know, not have school on days that teachers strike. If they get higher wages and higher pensions, that's money that can't go into the rest of government or that's money that has to come out of taxpayers' pockets. The idea that individual workers can pick up and leave for individual states is something that is much more amenable to a market logic, even if you don't recognize collective power or collective bargaining as legitimate. It makes sense that an employee who could pick up and leave somewhere else has the power to negotiate a better deal. Any business owner would tell you that. But the teachers themselves don't see it as a matter of, oh, we should have particularly well-qualified teachers get merit bonuses so that they don't have to leave. They see it as we have a collective identity as a profession. Collective bargaining is extremely important to us. And therefore, when some of our teachers are being poached elsewhere, that gives all of us the power to engage in collective action that might have been delegitimized in other circumstances. And I think that that's a really important thing to understand as this kind of raises questions of, are unions back? You know, is this going to result in a rise of labor power or labor action across the country? Getting people to recognize the purposes in which collective action works and getting people who might not otherwise agree that it's very important for workers to be able to unionize and strike if possible and act collectively, getting people to understand in what cases the workers themselves think that that's the way they want to do things is, I think, very important to kind of getting people to buy into the baseline premise of what a union is for. Right. I think that 
labor unions itself, like the, just the concept right now, is not even what's pushing this. But I, I agree in the sense that people here are realizing how much power they have if they can all agree to do the exact same thing. And, for example, in Arizona, where people are, you know, where teachers are getting ready, saying that they want to strike, there is this fear of, you know, still some teachers are scared of doing it. And in Oklahoma, teachers are saying that the reason that a lot of states have just kind of never really given much thought to what the teachers want is because they think that it would be unpopular for them to strike, that it would actually be a backlash against teachers. And, you know, they care so much about their students, they would never do that to hurt their students. So there is this idea that teachers would never go to that extreme because, you know, they care about their students. They don't want them to, like, miss out on school and just not have anywhere to go. But um, so this is kind of like a backlash to that idea that, you know, teachers actually can get organized. And there is a lot of support for them to do that. Right. I mean, obviously, it is worth saying, right, it's a, it's a huge inconvenience to normal people in their lives and probably not great for the children in the school to have teachers go out. So it's a it's a workable strategy, but only if you're confident that the public is going to sympathize with the underlying claim, right? It's a it's a way of addressing, I mean, I guess this is what I was saying before, but you have a concern where you think most voters would like a more generous approach to teachers, but you also think that most voters are not inclined to actually base their voting behavior on that fact, right? So then you're just like, you're kind of screwed because convincing people that you're in the right is not going to get you a political win if they're going to vote anyway for, for Republican, Republican or- legislators. Because of course, I mean, it's, you know, people care about many different things. Exactly. And that's one of the things that some teachers in Arizona were saying because the head of the teachers union there was saying, well, we'll vote people out of, of office if they don't do what we want. And the teacher's like, I don't really, I'm not counting on the voters to uh-huh. do that. So they're seeing that, you know, using the ballot box as a way to get what you want or get uh, the legislation that you want is just, it hasn't been working so far. I think we might have to take a break. Let's do it. Are you going to South by Southwest? If you are, join Ezra for a live taping of The Ezra Klein Show. He's going to be talking to Melinda Gates about the power and importance of philanthropy, a something she knows a lot about, something he's very interested in. So where? You go to The Deep End by Vox Media, taking over the Belmont. It's about a 10-minute walk from the Austin Convention Center. When? It's Sunday, March 11th at 3.30 p.m. Who? Anyone. Anyone is welcome. You just request an invitation to come at foxmedia.com slash sxsw hyphen 2018. So find out more information, request an invitation at voxmedia.com slash sxsw 2018. There's a lot of stuff going on. That That's when Ezra's going to be on at 3.30. But The Deep End by Vox Media is taking over the Belmont for a three-day event at South by Southwest from March 9th through March 11th. It features live podcasts from many Vox Media Podcast Network favorites. Not me, sadly, but Ezra will be there. Kara Swisher's Rico Decode is going to be there. The Verge's Verge cast is going to be there. It's a really great lineup. Uh, check it out. You're going to enjoy it. So not at the same time that this is happening, but within the labor movement, the kind of lens through which this is all being understood is that a couple of weeks ago, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a case that, depending on how they rule on it, could exempt public sector workers who are represented by unions from having to pay wages if they're not actively members of that union. Uh, uh, Representation fees. Right, right. So that's, you can understand intuitively how that's a big, that could have a big impact in terms of unions being able to take in revenues. And this is a fight that anti-union conservatives have been waging for some time. A case went up to the Supreme Court about it a couple of years ago. Uh, 
it turned into a 4-4 deadlock because Antonin Scalia died before they released the decision. But this is something that the kind of people who are doing right-to-work laws at the state level see as the next big fight nationally to get the courts to recognize that you shouldn't force workers to pay into a union that they may not appreciate. They see it as a matter of free speech because unions are often mobilizing for Democratic candidates. And and this case only applies to public sector work. Right. So it would, in effect, it would turn non-right-to-work states into into right-to-work states with regard to their public sector workers. But probably you could use the legal precedent to push the cart forward. Uh, But even if not, the idea would be that you would weaken the unions in the non-right-to-work states. Right. So I just saw a new study on this. There's a lot, I think, that's a little unclear about the practical impact of of right-to-work laws, but there's very clear evidence that right-to-work laws help the Republican Party win elections. Because not only do unions lose some finances— And this is a critical sort of ambiguity in it, is that if you have to sign people up to get their dues, you not only have less money, but you have to spend more of your money on membership activities, right? It's a a flywheel, right? Where like the union's main thing has to be drumming up support for itself among the employees who are covered by the bargaining unit. Because if you're not out there every day hustling to make people want to be members, you're going to die off. Whereas in a in a non-right-to-work context, people can be members or they cannot be members. Either way, they're going to pay fees to you. You have to you know, try to do a good job at the collective bargaining sessions, like send somebody smart and like not be a total sucker. But day-to-day... You don't need to be doing that much vigorous representation, which lets you do more political activity, which is great if you are like a Democrat in a swing seat trying to win. And that's one of the big impacts here. But then there's a question as to whether it you will get like more active, more militant unions if they sort of have to have to work for their daily bread. Right. This is the thing is there you know, some unions have been kind of seeing this coming or thinking that this might be coming for a while and are thinking of it as for a while there, maybe we did get complacent. Maybe we were assuming that, you know, because everybody had to pay in, we didn't have to actively make the case or even that we had to get people to sign union cards. But once we got them to sign union cards, they were home free. We didn't have to worry about continuing to justify their union membership. And now, you know, they're saying, well, we have to organize. We have to do what we should have been doing all along and make sure that people buy into the union as a product, as something that it is worth it for them to spend their money on. And I think that that's definitely a direction the labor movement can go. But I think it's really important to understand that the rise of public sector unions is the heart of the labor movement and the idea that unions spend money on Democrats and therefore Republicans should attack them. They're not totally connected, but they both kind of metastasized around the same time. And that it makes sense that when you're a public sector union, you can use electoral organizing to literally choose the people who are across the table from you, right? Like if private sector workers had the power to choose their managers, you know, that you could see something similar happening there. But the question of, you know, what unions have to offer people 
at this point really has gotten tied up to a certain degree in culture warization, right? The fact that a lot of union members in Midwestern states voted for Donald Trump was, you know, something that people pointed to for a while as evidence that if you were on the right, it was evidence that the labor movement had lost the confidence of its employees, that the labor movement, you know, was was out of date, out of touch. On the left, it was an argument that the Democratic Party wasn't doing enough to represent the real concerns of workers. But you can see a world where this kind of bread and butter sense of the union is something that gives you things. It's not necessarily something that's going to fight on political issues that you're not actively engaged with. Like, that's a potential future. It's probably not. It's not a future that the labor movement wants to engage in right now, partly because the people who are working for unions are people who are there to, you know, engage in progressive interests more broadly. And you can't really have a union whose organizers don't want to be, you know, you can't have a union whose organizers want to be doing slate of issues A and who are told they can't do slate of issues A. They have to do slate of issues B instead. You're not going to organize very effectively that way. But There are kind of multiple potential avenues that you could see coming out of a world where unions have to have a different relationship to their members than one that is just, well, it would be a nice thing for you to sign a card. You probably don't want to just be, you know, you probably want to show your gratitude to the organization that is representing you at the bargaining table, but you don't, you're going to have to pay for it either way. At, at the point at which you have to elect to send some of your paycheck to a union, and if you don't, the union's going to have to represent you at the bargaining table anyway. Is a union a product that you have to buy because it's going to get you things? Or is a union something that you want to spend money on as a signal of solidarity or as a signal of identity or as a way to affiliate with a preferred side in the culture war? It's an open question. I mean, I have no idea how the ruling would really affect labor unions, but I do think there is a case to be made that um, something needs to change in how, how, yeah, how they relate to their workers, what their role is in 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 working conditions, and wait, in, in just negotiating contracts, and in in the political sphere. So, I mean, I'm I'm very interested to see where that goes. Do the teachers that you know that you've talked to? understand what they're doing as part of a kind of progressive movement generally? Or do they think of it as a simple matter of like that politicians need to come together and give them what they deserve and that it's not part of a general bigger trend? So teachers I spoke to in Arizona definitely see it as kind of like a backlash against tax cutting and uh, spending cuts, like very much like a, a resistance movement. In West Virginia, it just seemed less like that. It was just a, such a frustration. It was about paychecks. It was about costs. It was it, it seemed to be like completely non-political. They were just mad at everyone in the legislature, Democrats and Republicans. So it, I feel like it probably varies by state, but that's kind of my feeling there. All right. Let's take a break. Talk Matt about, wants to talk, talk about, about some culture wars. <laughs> talk about some culture wars. So I went to um, San Francisco one time a few years ago. I was supposed to meet somebody for some coffee at a place called Blue Bottle. I got there. The line was really long. It was insanely long. And I, I was feeling pretty grumpy about it, frankly. I got to the front. I, I got my coffee. And damn, it was really good. I totally got it. I got why I had slept over there. I got why the line was so long. It was just like an amazing, an amazing cup of coffee. But still, waiting online is like it's super annoying. But now, Blue Bottle provides the most delicious coffee in the world right to your door. So it's incredibly fresh in their delivery service. It's roasted, shipped to your home within 48 hours of placing your order. So the beans arrive at peak freshness. And one sip is going to make you realize you've been drinking subpar coffee your entire life. I really say there's coffee and there's blue bottle coffee. 
Difference is Blue Bottle has an insane dedication to coffee. They scour the planet far and wide. They've got exclusive relationships with independent growers all over the world. They're sourcing only the most delicious and sustainable coffee there is. They roast and then they ship your coffee beans within 48 hours. Because they arrive at peak freshness, the coffees, they really have distinct flavor profiles. And they want to match you to a flavor profile that you're going to like. They've got this coffee match quiz and it's going to find the perfect coffee just for you. So from blends to espresso to single origins, they've got it all. So here's what you need to know. You go to bluebottlecoffee.com slash weeds and you're going to get $10 off your first subscription coffee order. Uh, That's bluebottle.com slash weeds, bluebottlecoffee.com slash weeds. Texas held its first round primary on Tuesday. There was some indecisive House races, some some high Democratic hopes maybe coming to fruition, maybe not. But also Beto O'Rourke, a congressman from El Paso, officially won the Democratic nomination to take on Ted Cruz. There was nothing surprising about that, but it sort of officially kicks off the the campaign. And Cruz responded by releasing on on YouTube and on Texas uh, radio kind of a country song attack on on O'Rourke. I think it's it's kind of funny. It's it's to the tune of uh, if you want to play in Texas, you got to have a fiddle in your band. But if you want to run in Texas, you can't be a liberal man. If you're going to run in Texas, you can't be a liberal man. Anyway, the, the main point is that Beto O'Rourke is too liberal for Texas, but he also gets in the fact that Beto's name is Robert. Robert wanted to fit in, so he changed his name to Beto and hit it with a grin. Which is just like a little line in a song, but it's part of a, a larger narrative, I guess, that his uh, enemies are, are trying to paint of him. And I guess the subtext here is that he is pretending to be Hispanic. Right. Right. The way that Cruz put it, and I don't remember this verbatim, is something like he wanted to fit in. So he changed his name. This idea that it is an kind of an active choice to like, oh, I'm in this Latino majority city in this Latino majority district. Instead of being Robert O'Rourke, I'm going to call myself by a Hispanicized version of my name, uh, to which the O'Rourke campaign literally released a photo of this like tiny toddler, you know, unrecognizable Beto O'Rourke. And the only reason you can tell it's Beto O'Rourke is because his sweater literally says Beto on it. And the implication being, you know, he's El Paso born and raised. Ted Cruz was not born in Texas. Ted Cruz was born in Canada. Uh, And, you know, that if anything, the kind of fact that Beto is this Irish dude with a Latino nickname indicates that he's been part of that South Texas culture, whereas one immigration activist in Texas who I follow on Twitter put it, everybody in South Texas has a Latino nickname. It's just a thing here. Yeah. And what I love about this story is just that, you know, Republicans have been like going after Democrats for like, you know, playing identity politics. And this is just like identity politics all over again, but this time coming from Ted Cruz. And I think I think it's a really funny story, too. Um, my parents actually live in El Paso, and I, I spent part of my childhood there. And no one in, in El Paso thinks that he's Latino. No, I mean, he was on the city council. I mean, there, there's no just the idea that he could somehow pretend to pass off as being Mexican-American there is just kind of ridiculous for people from El Paso because he's clearly not. And it's not just because he's fair-skinned. I mean, there are many, like, fair-skinned Mexican-Americans there. Um, you know, I'm Mexican-American. I'm fair-skinned, too. It's just that you know when you talk to someone, when you hear them talk, even when you hear them speak Spanish, like, there's, like, a very strong Mexican-American culture and identity on the border and in Texas. And and it's very much, like, how you speak. Like, even, like, 
the words you use, the slang you use. There's so much to it. The body language, like your gestures, it's it's so very particular to think that people in El Paso would somehow like be like duped into thinking that he was like Latino and he wasn't. It's to me like hilarious. I mean, there is a little bit of this that is like Beto O'Rourke does not have terribly high name recognition in Texas. And so maybe there's an argument that some of the people who didn't know who he was, who aren't from El Paso, might have been a little bit fooled and maybe Ted Cruz will inoculate them against that. But I... I think that the Ted Cruz campaign is smart enough to realize that Beto O'Rourke's strong support in El Paso is not because people think he's Latino. I think it's more that this is like a conservative mobilization thing, right? Yeah, but that said, I, I do, I do want to say I am not from El Paso. I've never been to El Paso. I was fooled. I don't want to say I was fooled because I, I, I am 100% convinced by the photographic evidence that like Robert legitimately picked up the nickname Beto as a school kid in El Paso. But I looked at it you know, not being a super close scholar of this area, but like I knew that a guy named Beto O'Rourke had knocked off Sylvester Reyes in a primary in a majority Latino district. And the inference that I drew from that, I'm of course also not a moron. I know that O'Rourke is an Irish name. And dude like looks like a Kennedy is the other thing but, here. But I figured that either he had a Mexican or Mexican-American mom or else there are a few families in Mexico with Irish names because a lot of people emigrated from Mexico to, to various places. And so I figured that was the story. And I also figured that he used the first name Beto as a signifier of that because these things do matter in, in politics. And there's endless stories about Spanish names in, in politics. I mean, I, I remember um, when when Ruben Gallego was running in, in his primary in, in Arizona, his opponent was noting that his father's name was was much less Spanish sounding, but he had switched to start going by his mother's name years earlier. And there was a controversy as to whether that was a ploy to win political support in South Phoenix or like an actual thing about the dynamics in his family, right? And it's not fake. And of course, it's also not fake. I mean, the Part of the irony here is that Ted Cruz's name is Raphael, uh, Raphael with, with an F, uh, which is also my my father's name, as a Spanish name. And I saw that he, um, in law school, went so far as to go by Edward, right, in the conservative journal, or maybe it was Ted, uh, but by Raphael in the Harvard Latino Law Review. And it's not like code switching is like a, a scandal, right? But there was definitely some point in the time of the life of Rafael Cruz when he decided it would be more advantageous to anglicize his self-presentation and go go by Ted. I actually, I think that code switching is, it's not a scandal, but code switching in politics is a really fraught thing, right? Because on the one hand, it's something that politicians do all the time. Like the number of times that, a politician is airing ads in Spanish that are silent on some of the physicians that are loudest in their English ads. It's, you know, it's it's ubiquitous. At the same time, in an age where any message that you try to narrowcast can be broadcast more widely, there's always the the possible allegation of hypocrisy, right? That like, or that a politician is hiding something. I was always a little bit surprised that this never explicitly got made about Obama for all the racist attacks on President Obama. The fact that he would on occasion be more colloquially black in front of black audiences uh, was something that 
I figured could be used by, you know, the racist right as see he's hiding from you who he really is. He sounds white when he talks to you, but when he talks to his own people, blah, 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 blah. I mean, not just audiences, you know, I mean, I, I remember a couple of times being in sort of roundtables with him and he would answer questions from African-American journalists in a different, you know, dialect than than his normal one or then, you know, and he would switch fluently like around the table, depending on, on who he's talking to, is definitely an Obama thing. Here's what I think about Pero. He, for sure, he decided to go by Pero, like, for political reasons. But I think that the reason was definitely not to, like, make people think he was Latino. I bet if at the most he was thinking, I at least people will think of me as an ally, as, you know, like, maybe more approachable in, like, such an overwhelmingly, like, Latino area. Um, so I'm sure that it had something to do with it. Now, the the idea that he's like pretending to be Mexican is just it's ridiculous. Right. right. No, but I think I think this is kind of the other side of the Ted Cruz critique over the kind of more politically powerful side of it than, you know, he's trying to fool people is this kind of idea of the hapless woke white guy, right? This like, oh, I love the Latinos. I'm going to adopt a Latino nickname to show how much I love the Latinos. And like, even above and beyond the kind of super racist, oh, you know, you're a cuck, you're selling out your own people, you're okay with being invaded, blah, 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 blah. There's kind of a wariness in people who aren't, you know, in, in people on the center right and right of white liberals who bend over backwards to demonstrate their solidarity with non-white people, that like they're trying to, they're protesting too much, that they're too eager to play the race card against, you know, conservatives, blah, 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 blah. And I think that there's kind of in Ted Cruz, who is himself like has a Latino surname, but who has often found himself on the side of controversies where his, you know, his side is being accused of racial racism or at least racial insensitivity is trying to neutralize that by saying, yeah, but you're the kind of, you know, holier than thou white liberal who would even go so far as to adopt a Latino nickname just to show how down you are. Well, but I mean, also, you know, these name choices, they matter to people in their in their families, right? Like it, it is definitely was a conscious choice of my parents you know, my 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 dad's name was was Rafael. His father was Jose, uh, but but I'm Matt, and my brother is Nick. And they decided to give very like flat, very Anglo names to us. My my son's named Jose after my grandfather, who's my my favorite grandfather. And it's not, I think, a super unusual thing to name a child after a favored grandparent. But my grandparent has a Spanish name, and that signifies something. And he's like he's very very white kid. And frankly, his level of Cuban ancestry is incredibly attenuated. It's not just that they're like fair-skinned Latino people, but like he has very little uh, actual ethnic or, or genetic origin there. But he has this Spanish name. People, Latino people especially, like take note of that when they hear it, when we're out somewhere. And sometimes it strikes them as odd, I think, or or interesting. And it's always been part of the like immigration process to America is this kind of thinking about ethnically coded names and particularly because, you know, there's this effort in the United States to construct a Latino identity in a way that would be parallel to 
black identity and it doesn't work that well at a minimum like it creates a lot of odd edge cases whereas like the black white racial gap in the united states has been very persistent and very clear there's a lot of boundary cases um you know including a cuban guy who was born in canada who moved to texas who goes by ted right Right. I'm so glad you got into this because it it gives me an excuse to talk about my very favorite weird use of Latino identity politics in a race, which is the 2010 New Mexico governor's race, which for a while there, Susana Martinez, you know, won the election ultimately as a Republican. She was Latina. Her opponent was not Latina, but her running mate, the lieutenant governor candidate was. So he kind of got dispatched to do a lot of these identity politics things. And he put out a Spanish language ad saying, Susana es una Tejana, which like literally is Susana is a Texan. Like she's not really, you know, she doesn't have the kind of New New Mexican appeal. And these things often aren't legible through the lens of Hispanic is an identity and you either choose Hispanidad or, you know, you choose whiteness. There is a lot of kind of decades-long resentment of Cuban-Americans for trying to be white and for selling other Latinos under the bus generally. And that plays into the role to immigration politics where there's some resentment that Cubans have kind of held themselves apart because it's been easier for them to come to the U.S. legally than it has anybody else. But the idea of Ted Cruz in particular, who not only is a Republican who's been intermittently an immigration hawk, uh, but who is not born in the U.S. and is Cuban, kind of trying to engage in this identity politics of Latinidad, there are a lot of different ways that this could go against him. Right. There's like so many different sub uh, groups and sub identities, you know, and the Mexican American identity is very different from the Cuban American identity. So there is this idea that like all Latinos, that it's just like one identity. And and in particular, like there's always been the talk about, you know, certain people just aren't Latino enough or they don't speak Spanish well enough, so they can't be Latino. So I feel like that's always like something playing out with whether someone is either like Hispanic enough to be like call themselves Latino. And then in this case, it's now Beto who's being told the opposite, that he's too white to be like using a name like Beto is just crazy. But one thing I think is really interesting about the Beto story is that I think a lot of people don't realize how like him being Irish Catholic even though he's not like uh, very dogmatic and he's like pro-choice and everything, Mexican-Americans have a very strong solidarity with Irish Catholics. So that probably played more of a role in his popularity. In El pa- I mean, not, not obviously like his positions as well, but when I was growing up in El Paso, like the priests at the churches were, were all Irish Catholics. Some of them spoke Spanish really well. The masses were in Spanish. So there is this solidarity, even though like uh, Irish Catholics and just white Americans in El Paso are a minority, the, the Catholic culture, the tradition is very much strong between Mexican-Americans and Irish Catholics. So that may have played a role. I don't know. Well, and specifically in, in the history of, of Texas, I mean, I think this is not super well known, but it was it was John Kennedy's campaign in, in 1960 was the first one to run Spanish language television ads because they saw his Catholic identity as a vulnerability in many places, uh, particularly in the South, which Democrats had traditionally counted on, but potentially an asset in gaining Latino votes in tech. I mean, they were very focused on Texas, right? They they made Lyndon Johnson the vice president. They They knew that was the southern state that 
a Northern Irish Catholic Democrat was most likely to lose. And they really wanted to not lose it. So like they had Johnson as VP. They campaigned in in Rio Grande Valley communities and they tried to forge that Catholic linkage angle and also – for at least in the a lot of the the middle of the 20th century uh, irish was the sort of like default face of immigration type politics i, I think that's probably right um certainly by 1960 the irish would be the kind of politically empowered immigrant class yeah the ones you would be most likely to see in office right so you know there's a there's a there's a specific sort of route to that connection but it's You know, it's like those communities have gone in very different trajectories over the past 50 years. Right. I think the other thing here is the fight in Texas in terms of the question of when and whether Democrats can take Texas in statewide elections has always depended on can Democrats get turnout from low, historically low turnout segments of the population, often including Latinos, particularly low income and rural Latinos, including a lot of people on the U.S.-Mexico border. So that, I think, is a little bit orthogonal to this name politics thing. Because name politics, you can understand it as when you're in the ballot box, you're going to recognize the Latino name. I don't know that there's as strong a case for if you see road signs for somebody with a Latino name and you don't know anything else about the election, you're going to show up to an election you've never shown up to before because you've seen a Latino name. In that case, the area where I think it's much more relevant is, you know, do you have a good Spanish language outreach operation? Does your candidate speak Spanish? Can they do their own stuff? Do they have good validators who can do that kind of thing? And that isn't necessarily something where Beto O'Rourke is at a disadvantage relative to Ted Cruz. It'll be interesting to see, though, if Ted Cruz, like, worried about this kind of, you know, Democrat Democratic backlash or in Texas, will start playing up more of his immigrant route. Like, I'm really interested to see how now he might be playing identity politics more in the next few months. I totally want to see the Spanish language Ted Cruz, Beto O'Rourke, Univision oh, debate. Yes. That'd be great. That I mean, Marco great. Rubio did this in, in you know, when he was first running for office, he was more than happy to do the Univision debate, you know, and would speak in Spanish very eloquently about how bad bilingual education was and how important it was for immigrants to learn English. But he would, you know, he was in the early phase of his career, back before Marco Rubio forgot how to do politics. He was very good at this in a way Ted Cruz has never really been. So it's it's going to be really interesting to see this. Uh, fun postscript, by the way. The children of Beto O'Rourke are named Henry, Molly, and Ulysses, uh, which is maybe less Irish Catholic than Irish by way of James Joyce, but certainly doesn't indicate that he's trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. And with that, we are never trying to pull the wool over your eyes here on The Weeds. Uh, we thank you uh, very much for listening. Thanks to our producer, uh, Bridget Armstrong, engineer Griffin Tanner for working with us. You should check out the many other podcasts of the Vox Media Network podcasting suite. In particular, if you want to some explanations of what is actually happening in the news rather than musings about people's names, the Today Explained podcast is always there for you with the big takes and the, and the stuff you need to know. Thanks, Alexia, for joining us, and we'll be back on Tuesday. Boys, don't get us wrong. There's just something missing in your song. If you're gonna play in Texas, you gotta have a fiddle in the band. That lead guitar is hot, but not for Louisiana band. So rousing up that both of faded love.